That's right. Population uh, growth has been so significant. And you look at the projections for what population is expected to be by the year 2040. And uh, we got some work to do. And it's not just I-70, it's transportation infrastructure in the entire state. Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. Alex Kaufman, Wintry Mix, episode 78. Six months ago, I moved back to Colorado after 20 years in Vermont, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, and Oregon. Sure, I'd heard all about the vehicular growing pains that were going on around the I-70 mountain corridor from the Front Range to Glenwood Canyon, but They were not my problem. Now, they are my problem. Well, they're our problem. So what gives? What's being done about it? What can't be done about it? Who is deciding all of this? And how should we get along with this asphalt snake that makes Colorado mountain tourism happen? Not to mention interstate commerce and, you know, food. With us to drop an avalanche of knowledge across both lanes is the director of the I-70 Coalition, Margaret Bowes. And the episode after this one will be about I-70 as well. And maybe it'll become one in five of every episode in the future, so buckle up. My related archive episode shouts for you include episode 74, which was live from Eldora, the non-I-70 mouse that roars, and episode 59, which was a wintry car talk episode. And you should hear 69 from Schweitzer, 70 from Winter Park, and 8 with the plow driver. Okay, that's enough. Just go dig in sometime. Follow the podcast on Instagram for episode announcements and random memes that I come up with at Wintry Mixcast. When you pump out the pod in your story and tag it, I will send you free stickers. There's also a podcast voicemail and text line, 802-560-5003. Feel free to offload some thoughts on I-70 after you hear this one or any topic. Just share your truth. Any questions or partnership inquiries can be emailed to alex at wintrymixcast.com. Five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts mean I will owe you a beer in the wild. And we're right around 200 beers that I owe at this point, so do it to it. Stand by for the goods. of Wintry Mix is supported by Bojo's Colorado-style pizza. Also, the 10-Barrel Brewing Company. With five locations along the Front Range and another in Steamboat, Bojo's is a uniquely Colorado destination since 1973. The food and beer menu is a mile high, and their mountain pies will change how you think about pizza. Locals and visitors return to Bojo's for the family-friendly salad bar, Relaxed atmosphere and pizzas measured by the pound. You'll see. Also a great spot for your party or fundraiser with groups of 20 or more. Visit locations in Idaho Springs, the original, and a perfect I-70 operate off-ramp. Evergreen, Arvada, Fort Collins, Steamboat, and Longmont. Probably shouldn't have the kid read this one. 
The Ten Barrel Brewing Company opened a massive brew pub in Denver's River North District in 2017, and their Pray for Snow Winter Seasonal gives 1% of sales to protect our winters. You know, how? Have you seen their Hold My Beer and Walks This flicks? You should. Track the movements of the beer cat and take in their latest movies or scope the dates of the next hella big air on 10barrel.com. For the last five years, I've been talking to you about beer in the wild, so it's only fitting that 10 Barrel and their Drink Beer Outside mantra are here to support wintry mix and all our wintry pursuits. 10barrel.com and in the refrigerated sections near you. Let's begin the journey, shall we? I have Margaret Bowes on the video chat machine here this morning. Uh, Margaret, have you caught your breakfast yet? Well, not quite yet. I'll do that after our interview. <laughs> yeah, I think we're both the, the coffee to start type. Right. <laughs> uh, where are you sitting right now? So I am sitting in Summit County, Colorado, uh, in my home office for the I-70 Coalition. And you are the executive director. Is that the correct title, I-70 Coalition? It's the director, <laughs> not executive director. Don't ask me why. But yes, director of the I-70 Mountain Corridor Coalition. I-70 Mountain Corridor Coalition. Um, but my guess is you didn't arrive in the mountains as that. What's kind of your origin story? What brought you to the hills? So it's such a common story up here in the mountains. It's not even that interesting. Finished college, had a degree, didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, professionally, um, loved to ski, so moved up to the mountains. It was just going to be for one winter, but I ended up just falling in love with the the mountain culture and the mountain community. And I did the ski bum thing for a handful of years and traveled in the off season and had a blast, um, but did eventually decide I wanted to uh, maybe take a more professional path. And so got into association management kind of work and eventually fell into this position. And I don't necessarily want to date you, but I'll date myself in the same way. When when did you arrive? Like, what were the years? Uh, it's been about 30 years uh, since I moved to Summit County. What was your first job when you first came to town? Waiting tables. Waiting tables, nights only, so I could ski during the day or a mountain bike, uh, depending on the season. And it's been Summit County the whole time, so you were skiing yep. Breck or something back then? Yep. A-Basin, Keystone Breck, Copper, wherever I could get a pass. <laughs> How many people do you think lived in Summit County in the, I guess, late 80s, early 90s? You know, I think it was something like 18, 19,000. And now I believe we're approaching 30. Not sure I have that exact, exactly right. But there's been a pretty good population increase for sure. Yeah, I've got some population stats in front of me that we'll roll through in a little bit. So the I-70 Coalition, give me the elevator explanation, kind of what is it? Mm-hmm. So um, obviously I-70 is critically important to all of the mountain communities. And it was at a point in time when the federal and the state government were looking at the I-70 mountain corridor and trying to determine what the long-term plan should be for improving it. And it was evident early on that mountain communities, mountain businesses, local governments up here along the mountain corridor were not being asked for any input on what we saw as the potential future for I-70. And so the I-70 coalition was formed so mountain 
communities could speak with one larger voice. So we're 28 towns, counties, and businesses that have all come together to advocate for improvements along the mountain corridor. And when you say formed, this wasn't that recently. This was a while back, correct? 2004. Yep. That is when the, you know, every major road project, even minor road projects have to go through an environmental review. So uh, this was obviously a big one. It took a decade to do the programmatic environmental impact statement process that's required. And uh, the I-70 coalition was formed kind of on the early end of that effort and uh, came together and came to a consensus agreement, which is no small task. 28 local governments and businesses uh, among our coalition did come to a consensus recommendation on what we saw as the ideal improvements for I-70 50 years out into the future. And we will get to those recommendations in just a, just a touch. I'm guessing that prior to 04, everybody's kind of shouting out different things. No, we should do this. No, don't do that. We got to go. What were the primary kind of push and pulls prior to the coalition coming together that, that kind of led to it? Well, um, you're absolutely right. There was not a great harmony right out of the gate in the I-70 coalition. Clear Creek County, very um, constrained. Through Idaho Springs and Georgetown, there is not much real estate to widen I-70. And to widen I-70 will actually take part of Idaho Springs downtown, um, their property. And so they have always been big advocates for uh, a train or uh, some kind of high-speed transit. Whereas maybe a, a, a Grand County or an Eagle County says, no, let's just widen, let's just widen the highway. Let's just fix the highway, improve the highway, and call it done. So there was a little bit of um, different priorities, even within the coalition in those early days. And in 04, the process for building consensus begins. Were you involved at that time or you got involved later? No, I got involved later, about 2007, 2008. Close enough that you heard the stories. So oh, yeah. so the process of getting it started and then bringing those groups closer together in order to speak with one voice kind of took how long and what was that process like? You know, I would say it was um, three years of really good hard work just within coalition membership. And at the same time, trying to um, lobby isn't quite the wor right word CDOT to get them to listen to the, the wants and wishes of the stakeholders along the mountain corridor. So I would say it was really 10 years of good hard work because of that's how long that programmatic environmental impact process took. So the consensus, I guess there is one. Congratulations that there even is one. I can't believe that. Yeah. That seems next to impossible in and of itself. Start to walk us through what that consensus is that you're that is trying to be accomplished and that is agreed upon for the next you know one five ten twenty years. Mm -hmm. Well, and um, I'd like to take that consensus recommendation one step further. So um, the coalition came to its decision, but then CDOT, uh, it was then Governor Ritter and CDOT Director Russell Georgets. Um, put together this group of a much broader group of stakeholders. So it was also federal agencies like the U.S. Forest Service. It was the State Historical Society. It was the Denver Chamber, um, a much broader group of people, and said, okay, you 28 stakeholders, now if you can get in a room and come to consensus, CDOT and the Federal Highway Administration will honor your recommendation. So again, it was it seems like a minor miracle, but a very um, diverse group of stakeholders did come together 
and create a consensus recommendation. And so what that recommendation is, it's, it's now memorialized in a federally recorded document called the I-70 Record of Decision. And it plans I-70 improvements through the year 2050. And so, of course, it looked at a lot of modeling. What's the traffic going to be like in the year 2050? What kind of capacity do we need? And so that document says that there's three components to the long-term plan. One is obviously some highway widening and some improvements like interchange improvements and auxiliary lanes. The second component is some kind of high-speed transit system. And then the third is non-infrastructure improvements. So those are things like enforcement, maintenance of uh, snow by CDOT, it's real-time information systems for travelers, encouraging carpooling, off-peak travel, et cetera, et cetera. Educating the humans. Yes, that's right. So before we get into too much more detail of, of that exact uh, process of the consensus decision, uh, where we are in that process, let's take a quick step back. So I left Colorado in about 99, and I came back about 20 years later. Some things have happened in those 20 years. Um, back then, I mean, I-70, it was challenging, but it didn't seem like it was this crux of an issue at the time. And I looked at some population stats before we, we chatted, and 1973, I'm not expecting you to know the population of Colorado in 1973, but take a guess. Okay, well, I don't even know what it is now. I don't want to guess. Don't okay, okay, guess. no worries, no worries. <laughs> so I won't make you guess, but the population in 1973 was 2.5 million. Okay. And 1973 is not chosen at random. That was the year the Eisenhower Tunnel opened mm -hmm. when I-70 finally blasted through the mountain. Mm -hmm. And then 1999, about 25-something years later, 26, 27, uh, 4 million. So we added 1.5 million in, in that time period. And then 2018, which is the most recent census data, I, I grabbed 5.7 million. Mm -hmm. So since 1973 to 2018, more than doubled the population of the state. And I mean, that's the largest integer in this entire situation, right? Just population of the state and influx of tourist visitors on top of that. There's mm. only so much we're going to be able to do when there's just more and more and more humans. That's right. Population uh, growth has been so significant. And you look at the projections for what population is expected to be by the year 2040. And uh, we got some work to do. And it's not just I-70, it's transportation infrastructure in the entire state. I mean, anyone that's traveled along the Front Range sees it um, on a daily basis. But yeah, it, it was bad. When I moved to Summit County, Sunday afternoon traffic was a consideration, but it lasted for maybe an hour or two. And fast forward to today, and we can have eastbound delays on a Sunday afternoon that last five, six hours. So it, it has changed significantly. Well, it's funny, like people who live in Frisco, they think a lot about the eastbound delays. I live in Golden. I uh -huh. think a lot about the westbound delays. And then I just kind of like live with the eastbound delays. I think it depends on which side of the hill you're on. Interestingly, the 1973, the tunnel opened. They were building it for five years. So folks that are like, they have to wait an hour or two to get through the mountain. I mean, at least you're not waiting five years. Mm -hmm. That's right. Or having to go over the pass every single time. Because if mm -hmm. we tried to push that many people over the passes, and they looked at building a tunnel and through Berthoud instead, and mm -hmm. kind of through Loveland Pass instead, before they actually put it where they put it. Um, I would encourage anybody interested in this topic to watch the uh, Rocky Mountain PBS 
tunnel documentary. Just Google yeah. it, find it. It's it's super informative, and it has some uh, information about today as well. Um, so we left off with you know the population. We have to figure out a way to move the people. And you were mentioning that you know there's long term stuff like high speed. I don't think you said rail, but high speed transit. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the fix the humans. What was the third component? Some highway improvements. So highway improvements, changes, yeah. adding auxiliary lanes, you know, which is like climbing lanes approaching Eisenhower Tunnel, for example, or on Bell Pass. So I feel like two of the three we're currently living through. Those things are currently being worked on. The high speed transit piece, maybe not quite as much. Yeah, and, and boy, we could spend a lot of time talking about the potential of high speed transit. Um, there have been lots of studies that have been done. It's been deemed completely technologically feasible to build a high-speed transit system through the mountain corridor. Money is the big stumbling block. The front range rail, there's lots of discussion about building some kind of high-speed rail on the front range. And of course, that would likely happen before a mountain corridor rail system anyway. And so if and when that front range system is complete, I think it, it will um, increase the discussion again about a mountain system. But it's it's the price tag that is really the big barrier for high speed transit. What were the ideas that kind of came up? People played toyed around with for a little bit, but we kind of said, no, that's not a good idea. We, um, along with other stakeholders, hosted a technology fair for high speed systems. And boy, we saw all sorts of crazy stuff. What seemed to be crazy stuff, but I don't know. Um, technology is changing so quickly. But I think one of the kookiest ideas I ever heard uh, was someone wanted to build, essentially, it sounded like a giant zipline gondola that was gravity fed. So I don't know how they planned to get people up to the mountains in that gondola, but they just kind of wanted to zip them on home, which seemed, you know, pretty far out there. So there's certainly some some crazy ideas. Kind of like a roller coaster. You just inch your way up, 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 and then zoom yeah. down to the dino lots. Yeah, sounds kind of fun, but. <laughs> That's wild. So three areas of focus right now, the roadway, improving it, educating the people and transit in the future. But you mentioned, um, you know, funds, obviously, as being one of the key hurdles. Quantify, you know, the actual value of the road. I mean, there must be so many stakeholders with so much money at risk. Is it all tax dollars or do you have private money coming in for any of the stuff? No, it's a uh, gas tax is the primary funding vehicle for transportation in Colorado. And uh, the state gas tax hasn't been raised since um, 1991. And the federal gas tax was last raised in 1993. When polling has been done about potential avenues to increase funding for transportation, no one wants to increase the gas tax. I, I don't know why, but Coloradans don't want to increase the gas tax. It's 22 cents per gallon. I just moved I just moved from Vermont. Gas was like $3 a gallon. And now where I live now, it's $2.50. Let's do it. I know. I know. Um, and But the gas tax is a dying tax. We have more electric vehicles. We have more fuel efficient vehicles. And that is all resulting in less gas tax revenue. So yes, it'd be great, I think, to increase the gas tax, but it's probably not the most sustainable tax um, in the long run. And again, last time federal gas tax was raised was 93. That is 18 cents per gallon. Uh, anyway, we are far more dependent on federal funding in Colorado than most other states. 
um, Utah, which has very, uh, very similar tourism infrastructure and economy. Um, you know, they have challenges with snow and mountains. They are 75% state funded, whereas Colorado is only 57% state funded. So we're not doing a very good job in Colorado of funding our infrastructure. Okay, let's just come up with some random ideas and throw them against the wall then. So people have probably thrown out ways to fund. Um, I know in other resort communities, there are specific taxes that are more localized that go towards local issues, local infrastructure. Um, has anyone ever proposed, you know, these, you know, lodging and food and taxes that hit the impacted base of residents? So it's residents and tourists. So if it was along, if you are within, say, 40 miles of the I-70 corridor, north or south, this 2% tax is just on everything. Would that raise enough? Would people just fight it? I, I don't know. I can't quantify whether it would be enough money to even help. Mm hmm. Well, I would say, and you 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 hit this early on, and kind of in your question is lift tick lift ticket tax and lodging tax are being utilized in mountain communities. They're already being utilized right. to offset impacts in local communities, and of course, it becomes very political. The ski industry doesn't like the idea of lift ticket tax all that much, and I know if they were here on your podcast, the industry would say, "Hey, I seventy traffic isn't just a skier issue." And it's true. Right. It's bad in the winter. The volumes are even higher in the summer. So we we can't, you know, do the resorts have a role to play in solutions? Absolutely. But can we lay the whole issue of I-70 congestion at the ski industry's feet? No, we can't. So it's tricky to to figure out how to pay for an I-70 improvement. But we contend I-70 is so critical to the state as a whole. It's easy to look at congestion as just a skier inconvenience, right? But the fact of the matter is our mountain economy through this whole Western slope area is dependent on tourism. And so we are dependent on I-70. It's also a main street for mountain communities. People that live in Idaho Springs, they use I-70 to get from home to school and from work to the grocery store. And it's not any different in Eagle County and in Summit County. It is our main street. So you know, it's it's important to moving freight. It is the only major east-west corridor in Colorado to move uh, goods and services. And then quality of life. A lot of folks down in the Front Range, like you, I'm guessing, people live on the Front Range, moved there, took jobs there because they love the mountains and they want to ski. And without a doubt, I-70 congestion is becoming a barrier for Front Range folks to get to the mountains they love. Yeah, we don't we don't go. My wife and kids and I, we have Loveland passes and we got them partially because they have benefits at some other of the kind of gems resorts, Monarch and Cooper and Sunlight and whatnot. And we don't really go up on a regular weekend. We go, we take long weekends kind of once a month um, to some of these these trade resorts um, with Loveland and we'll go to Loveland a bunch in the spring. It's kind of our plan for the season pass because we learned right away, like, oh, this doesn't really work so good. I'm sure people have probably thrown out, like, go fund me because that's new. Yeah, yeah, that'd be kind of fun. Um, you know, not to get too far down the political rabbit hole, um, but Colorado fiscal policy is really unique in that we have TABOR, Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which hmm. says any tax increase needs to go to a vote of the people. So... You know, I would say a few years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of political will down at the state legislature to fix this transportation funding issue. And that's really changed. 
But the legislature in Colorado can only do so much because, again, any tax increase goes to a vote of the people. Well, we've had a couple of things on the ballot in the last couple of years, and they were voted down pretty handily. So I think there is a bit of a disconnect between the populace and um, understanding how transportation is funded and <clears throat> that the bottom line is we're really getting behind the eight ball in Colorado. We have $9 billion worth of project needs. And so we're going to have to figure something out um, if we want to see I-70 and a lot of other corridors in Colorado fixed. Well, you make a good point, even though it kind of feels like when you're stuck in a traffic jam that everybody is stuck in the traffic jam. But in reality, on the grand scheme of the entire population of Colorado, this issue only probably directly impacts 15 percent mm -hmm. of the state, 20 percent of the state, 25 percent, right. not more than 50 Right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. The person down in Trinidad or Lyman isn't so concerned about Sunday afternoon or Friday evening traffic on I-70. All right. So let's drill down into the Sunday afternoon, the Friday evening. I know you're an expert of when to go and when not to go. Mm -hmm. um, give people the basics. Okay. Yeah. We have learned that getting people to shift their travel patterns can really yield pretty significant benefits. So we do spend a lot of time talking about peak and off-peak travel times. So um, Friday afternoons, Friday evenings have gotten to be pretty heavy. The start time varies a little bit, but let's just say 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. during kind of the height of the ski season and uh, July, August. It's Saturday mornings. It used to be you could leave at 7 a.m. to get ahead of skier traffic. Uh, that was, you know, 15 years ago. Now you got to leave at 6 a.m. So on the road before 6, if you want to get ahead of traffic, Sunday eastbound isn't so bad. Um, or I'm sorry, Sunday westbound traffic is is heavy at times, but not as consistently. And then eastbound, obviously, Saturday and Sunday afternoons, with Sunday being uh, much higher volumes. And during ski season, you kind of need to be on the road by noon, maybe 1 o'clock if you're lucky. And traffic can go as late as 6.30 or even 8.30 at night. And, and the main pin, pinch points, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're going eastbound, let's just do Sunday afternoon, for example, is approaching the tunnel, right? I've seen long backups approaching the tunnel. And then you kind of hit another one around the Georgetown Hill. It can back up from there. Mm -hmm. And then you'll hit another one kind of um, near the tunnels in Idaho Springs and then Floyd Hill. And after you kind of crest Floyd Hill, you're usually okay. I mean, or is it just kind of one long blob and I've just avoided it pretty well? No, the pinch points have always been and continue to be between Floyd Hill and a little bit west of Idaho Springs. Those are the pinch points. That's where traffic is consistently the slowest, both eastbound and westbound. You do get some, as you mentioned, congestion heading up I-70 between Silverthorne and the tunnel. And that's mostly grade related. You know, it just takes a, a, a slow moving truck or a slow moving vehicle to, to kind of back everything up. Plus traction. Um, that's a pretty steep approach in the winter and cars start to spin out. So, yeah, those those are the two uh, most likely to be congested areas for sure. And then whenever six is closed, they have to close the tunnel to let the trucks through every once in a while. And that just backs it up in both directions for miles. Yep, that's right. Moving hazmat is another factor for sure. Is there any way they can just. I mean, I guess there's not enough parking for all the hazmat if they didn't let it through. Mm -hmm. 
Right, right. And then there's the question of, of security. They don't like a bunch of hazmat vehicles parked in one spot for multiple hours um, that they have to message to the public. So, and, and freight's an important, uh, moving freight is really important, again, for our state economy. It's an interstate. It's important for our, our national economy to keep those trucks moving. So there's really no easy answer um, with the I-70 Mountain Corridor. We really lack options for east-west travel in the state to, you know, people say, well, how about an alternate route? Well, building an alternate route would involve going through public land and more tunnels. And, and you mentioned the PBS special about building the Eisenhower Tunnel and what, uh, what a feat and what an expense building that tunnel was. And so it's not so easy as to just say, let's just build another alternate route interstate. We're stuck with kind of what we have. And due to avalanches and weather, um, it's not really a very resilient interstate. And let's talk about the short-term stuff then, what we can do within our means without new taxes mm-hmm. um, or even just waiting for new taxes. So there's express lanes. Those are kind of new. Talk about those a little bit. Yeah. So the eastbound mountain express lane, it's uh, a tolled lane. It's actually, it's called, we call it a lane, but it, it's, an, it's an improved shoulder. So we took a shoulder, made it a little bit wider, turned it into a toll lane, and it's for folks that want that reliable travel time. If they're willing to pay, it's usually a, a seven, $8 toll. And uh, that allows the person that needs to get back to work or needs to get to the airport, uh, kind of, like I said, a reliable travel time. There's still the two lanes that are available for free travel for anyone that doesn't want to pay the toll. And those have really yielded great benefits. It's improved travel times. It's improved throughput. And... Um, also brought brought some good benefits for clearing accidents. Now, when there's an accident, they kind of have another lane to work with to to get people around that accident. I love following CDOT on Twitter because um, every once in a while, they actually respond to people, not just posting the alerts of the information. Uh-huh. And just a couple days ago, there was somebody saying, how come the toll lane's not open? Mm-hmm. And the response was, is that in building it, they made a deal with some other entity and that it can only be open like one third of the time or a hundred days a year. Mm-hmm. And they have to predict when that's going to be. Do, mm-hmm. do you know about that and why that's set up that way? Sure. The Federal Highway Administration has pretty specific standards for what a uh, 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 an official road is, you know, they want it built to scale and to safety standards and that sort of thing. And turning a shoulder lane into a travel lane is a relatively um, new concept and a very rare occurrence. So it took Federal Highway Administration to give kind of special permission for us to try this out. It was a little bit of a grand experiment, right? And but they don't want to see this be the long term solution for CDOT to say, oh, this is working fine, let's just call it good. You know, we want a, a, a nicely, a, a nice, safe, built to standard interstate. So this is really looked at as, as a short-term kind of a Band-Aid to get us through, give us some traffic relief through until we have the big fix. So Federal Highway Administration says, okay, we'll let you do this, but you can only use it when it's really needed. So they put a cap of the number of days that that lane can be open. So even though it's a Band-Aid, there's one going in westbound, correct? Correct. Yeah. And when I say Band-Aid, they think it'll you know last maybe 20 years, maybe more, maybe less. 
But again, it's just kind of a short-term fix because we have a pretty big issue on this corridor and it is going to provide us some relief, but we do expect down the road that there might be so many more cars on the road that even that lane um, you know, gets filled up as well. And westbound will go from, do you know from where to where, where it's intended? The exact same footprint. Oh, got it. Yeah. So other things that are now in effect, the snow staying exists? Yeah, yeah. We have been very involved in that. We were, since we have relationships with resorts, we were the first to kind of reach out to the resorts to gauge their interest in partnering with CDOT. And you know, this kind of stems from the su success of Bustang. Bustang is CDOT's um, bus service that's relatively new. And the popularity on this West Line has been has been fantastic. It's really exceeded expectations and demonstrated that people will take a bus between the mountains and Denver. So yeah, Snow Staying is the direct Denver to ski resort service. And we're just a couple of weeks into it. It's brand new. And we're super excited to give skiers uh, another option for getting to the mountains. And so you said it's been popular. I mean, how many buses are running? How many people is it moving? I know obviously it's new and you're just kind of uh, testing the waters, but like, what's the scale of it? Snow staying, not busting? Yeah, snow staying. Snow staying. So it is one bus every Saturday and Sunday to Loveland Ski Area, one bus every weekend to Arapaho Basin, and then one bus every weekend to Steamboat Springs Resort. Those are the three resorts that signed on. And they will also be running some holiday service like President's Day and Martin Luther King Day. And I want to dispel, I mean, there was a little bit of media attention around one bus that had like a fun day. Um, <laughs> but everybody, everybody waited in the traffic that day. First of all, A, everybody sat in the traffic. B, yeah. um, the people who were on the bus who commented on the fact that they got stuck for a little while, X, Y, Z, they're like, whatever. I had a place to pee and I had Wi-Fi. What did you have? Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. And, you know, the naysayers will say, so we have this bus service, but those people are sitting in the same traffic. But there is, um, you can sleep, you can surf uh, the web, um, you're arriving and getting dropped off right at the base. You're not in a, some remote parking lot taking a shuttle into the lifts. You're not paying for parking. So there's, there's a whole host of reasons why someone might opt to take a ski bus. And let's be real, people are probably drinking more beer and it's safer. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, another thing that people are working on, um, and I'm going to actually cover this in a future podcast, is the technology side, apps yep. and ride sharing and things like that. Yep. Anything that I don't know about happening in that space? You know, we were really um, looking forward to having an I-70 specific app for carpooling. We've been wanting it for years. We have over the years tried to adapt kind of a commuter type carpool app used down in the Denver metro area and try to make it fit for this corridor. It really doesn't translate. We knew after all those trials and errors that we needed something specific to the weekend traveler. And Gondola came about and they haven't launched quite yet, but we've been really excited to see that app launch. And then there's another one that's new on the scene and it's called Treadshare. And both of these apps are targeted on the person that's already gonna go skiing and they have a couple empty seats in their car. They bring on riders to offset the expense of that trip. So it's not an Uber or a Lyft. It's a car that was already gonna be on the road, hopefully getting other skiers to join them so they're not driving their individual vehicle. 
And um, yeah, we're really excited and really going to do all we can to promote and support these kind of technologies. Yeah, I'm talking to the Gondola guys um, in a little while, and there'll be a podcast with them uh, following up on this one. What I like about it, and I don't know if they're ready to market it this way. Uh, when I lived in Colorado when I was younger, and now even when I'm older, once in a while, if I'm going to a certain place that works out, my wife doesn't like it, but I still do it. It's just hitchhiking. It's electronic hitchhiking. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, it is the legalization <laughs> of hitchhiking. And I actually want to talk about taking a little spot on the dyno lots for people who don't want to do the app. Uh-huh. Uh, this is another one of my bad ideas. I just get to get them out there with no, no responsibility. <laughs> it, a little spot where basically... You, if you sit there and you got eight bucks or 10 bucks, pick a number. Uh-huh. It is just the sanctioned hitchhiking location. Yeah, why not? People just know that there's going to be people sitting there waiting. And mm-hmm. there's also a lot in like Silverthorne that's attached mm-hmm. to some you know public free bus system. And we need to somehow legalize and sanction just physical hitchhiking. Throw mm-hmm. it back. This app is one way to do it. Yeah. Um, but there may be an even simpler way to do it where there's just a Here's your bench. People will show up if they want to make 10 bucks and they got an empty car and back and forth. Just make it part of the dino lots. I don't have a catchy name for it yet, but maybe I'll come up with one before I talk to the gondola guys. Yeah. Sounds like a good social media campaign to me. Just make it happen. Pick a spot and put out the word. Anything else in the short term that you maybe see on the horizon that might get tested out? You know, no. Uh, again, we're just one other thing. One other factor I'd like to mention is we talk about improving i-70 but all those cars are going to get off somewhere right they're going to get off in a mountain community and mountain communities are more and more becoming gridlocked by this traffic and there's huge local impacts um you know congested streets not enough parking and there's only so much land in these mountain communities to add more to widen streets or add more parking and so mountain communities are more and more getting behind the idea of marketing these mountain destinations and encouraging people to arrive without their personal vehicle. And so I think we will continue to see that push. A lot of mountain communities also now have new climate action plans. And a big part of that is reducing vehicle miles traveled within their communities. So we're going to see more of a push from the mountain community ski town side to encourage folks to carpool, to take a ski bus, to take an airport uh, shuttle and arrive without their personal vehicle. Well, speaking of airport shuttles, so obviously we see tons of those. They've been happening for for decades. Mm -hmm. I assume that they're on the increase. They're probably a great part of the solution, I I would think, to also not have the car arrive in the ski town. Related to that, we have the new law, the new traction law. This is the first year of that, correct? Where basically cars have to have snow tires to be legal. I don't know how you enforce that, but you got to start somewhere. Right. Uh, The traction law isn't new, but it has been revised. And that revision does say that you are required during certain dates and certain um, sections of I-70 to always have adequate traction device on your car or um, an alternate traction device like chains. And so we, we see that as, as critical to this corridor. It just takes one spun out vehicle to really mess things up and close the highway. And so we are really happy that the legislature passed this um, clearer and more um, aggressive traction law. And we're really hoping that that will help keep things flowing this winter. And what's the responsibility of the rental car agencies as DIA in this? That's the million dollar question. <laughs> Um, there, I think there needs to be some work with rental car agencies. I think a lot of them don't even 
they're not even aware of the Colorado traction law um, or maybe feel that they're exempt from it. And so I know CDOT and Colorado State Patrol are spending some time reaching out to rental car companies to try to get them on board because that is certainly a big part of the equation. I mean, probably just make a handful of examples and then they'll realize it. If people rent cars and then get whacked and then sue Hertz, Hertz will figure it out. Right. Yep. Yeah. It's it's just irresponsible and it's unsafe to send these people up to the mountains in a car with summer tires. But it really is buyer beware. The renter needs to ask, are, is this car compliant with the traction law? And realize that if it isn't and they get ticketed, it is the driver that gets the ticket. It's not the rental car company. All right. We're going to sign off on one more bad idea that I have. Okay. You just gave it to me. <laughs> we need to get like Michelin to sponsor I-70 yeah. <laughs> and we'll give them like free billboard space. They'll be the official snow tire of Interstate 70. They'll be like a DIA component to it. Their sales will go through the roof and they'll donate X percentage of sales. I don't know, but we need to have okay. like an official, an official tire of the I-70 mountain corridor. That's not a bad idea. Tire sponsor. See, the more bad ideas you have, the better chance that one of them will be not terrible. Right. <laughs> Margaret, thanks so much. Any any last bits of advice here in the winter for uh, us travelers? Uh, check the GoI70.com travel forecast. It's specific to every weekend. It'll give you an idea of when traffic's supposed to be bad and not bad. And uh, check your tires and enjoy the snow. You going skiing this week? I am. I'm going to check the forecast right now when we sign off. And three more people I should have on about I-70 eventually. Um, you know, one person watching that PBS show, one of my board members, he's the vice chair of the I-70 coalition. He's a Clear Creek County commissioner, and he was actually um, involved in building the Eisenhower Tunnel. So kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely want to do that sometime for sure. Um, gondola, um, maybe someone from CDOT to talk about snow staying, if you wanted to dive into that a little bit more. And um, we didn't even get into like, what are the next big projects for I-70, but uh, maybe talking to the CDOT chief engineer, but he would be interesting to talk about some of the future projects that um, we're, we're eyeing for I-70. I'll keep giving it some thought to see if there's any other interesting folks that come to mind. I got time, I'll get them eventually. I'm stuck here with the highway, just like you. Yeah, that's right, you got plenty of time. Thanks, Margaret. <laughs> All right, thank you, bye-bye. And it's fact time. At the height of the construction of the Eisenhower Tunnel, the first bore that was dug out, there were 1,140 people employed in three shifts, 24 hours a day, six days a week. Original plans were for construction to take three years. It took five. The second bore, today's eastbound tunnel, was named for Edwin Johnson, former Colorado Lieutenant Governor. Governor, U.S. Senator, and major proponent of improved mountain corridor transportation for the advancement of the state. The second tunnel, named after Johnson, opened in 1979. Yep, we're both 40. Facts matter, folks. Insist on them. Music by Adam Levy. 
Other house cleaning details include that I've shut down the Patreon billing since most of the supporters were back east and it just kind of felt weird. Toss me those five-star Apple podcast ratings if you want to be a helper. I also plan to dedicate around one in five of future episode topics to the East Coast, because I know you're still listening and I aim to please. An interview with Ben and Jerry's marketing wizard and Stowe backcountry beast Mike Hayes is already in the can, so stay tuned for that. Follow on Instagram at Wintry Mixcast or find the show on Facebook or Twitter. Leave the pod a voicemail or text at 802-560-5003 and good chance it'll get into an episode. Call that number and leave your thoughts on I-70. Stick around for After the Beep. Goodbye. And they're prey for snow. Can you get Mommy to stop? Hey, Mommy, will you take a break for one second? Mommy, stop for a second. Thank you. The ten. <laughs> that was funny, right? <laughs> it's like ma, the meatloaf. <laughs> that was kind of what that was like. All right, we both have to stop laughing. Can you? No. You look like you're holding in a laugh. All right, come on. You're still. Are you? Are you, are you good? Finish it. Let it out. Or you can leave because I just got to finish this. You don't have any parts left. You're done. Oh wait. Okay.